I'm Christy Scott. I'm 35 years old, work in Vestec Banking. Um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer in January 2016. We were actually getting married at the beginning of March, so the 5th of March. So December 2015, I'm sitting on a veranda, stretching, having a nice glass of wine, and I scratched under my arm. And I just felt this tiny little pea-sized lump. It's right before December holidays, and I kind of, you know, it's one of those things you want to get a check, but no history of breast cancer in our family. So it wasn't anything. I was only 31, so I wasn't going for mammograms. You know, there was no need to actually do any of those tests, which people do do at a certain age. But they actually found it was, it was slow growing, and we caught it early. Luckily, I mean, as I say, I'm still the most grateful person ever because I think the fact that it was an invasive tumour means that if I'd found it a few months later, it could have been a very different picture. That was Christy Scott, a private banker at Investec, sharing her breast cancer story as part of a very brave and candid new Investec Life campaign that addresses women's health. It centers on the stories of brave women who have fought and won battles against cancer in the hope that what they have to say might uncover insights and information that help other women make informed decisions to prioritize one of their greatest assets, their health. As it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, the first podcast in our three-part series is with some of the country's top breast cancer experts who will talk about exciting new treatments, including the freezing of cancer cells. We will also deal with the psychological and financial impacts of a diagnosis and tackle some of the hype around cannabis as a cure for cancer and where the starving cancer cells of sugar can help. My name is Ingrid Booth, and I'm part of the digital content team at Investec. The topic of today's podcast is very close to my heart, as I'm also a breast cancer survivor who was diagnosed at the age of 35. If you find this podcast insightful, please subscribe to our channel and stay tuned for part two, where we look at lung cancer in women and ask the question why so many non-smokers are getting the disease. Part three is about women with liver cancer, and we look at why South Africa has the highest prevalence of this disease in the world but back to the topic at hand. I'm ashamed to say that when I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2016, I knew very little about the disease, even though my mother had gone through it in her 40s. I had to do a lot of research to understand what was happening in my body. So I'd like to start this podcast with a very straightforward explanation of what breast cancer is. And who better to ask than renowned oncologist, Professor Georgia Demetrio. So cancer cells themselves are just like rogue cells in our body that either divide too quickly and don't get mopped up by a normal mop-up mechanism in terms of our defense mechanism that kills bad cells. And we, we all have some bad cells that get mopped up and get taken out. But that rogue cell that for some reason escapes the control mechanism and then one cell becomes two, two becomes four, four becomes eight. And over time, you then start to feel a palpable lump. So that in layman's terms is what a cancer is. It's a cell that's got a proliferation advantage. It grows easier and better and faster and you're unable to knock it out of the system. So within breast cancer, for example, you might get a small lump developing within the breast. And then because you've got blood vessels and lymph drainage to that area, eventually as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, it gets into the blood vessels. Once you've got little cancer cells that get into the bloodstream or into the lymph vessels, it can start moving around the body. So then you get either the lymph nodes under the armpit that are involved, or a stray cell can go and sit either in the blood, um, in the bone marrow, in the liver, in the lungs, and it can start growing there. And as cancer grows, because it's got almost a growth advantage over your normal cells that are much slower at dividing and growing, it starts to take up the normal space that normal cells take up and it takes over normal function. Is it just me 
Or are you hearing about more and more cases of breast cancer amongst your friends and family? I read a report in The Lancet that estimates that the number of women being diagnosed with breast cancer could double to almost 3.2 million by 2030. To find out why this is the case, I spoke to Professor Carol Benn, one of South Africa's leading breast surgeons and founder of the renowned Netcare Millpark Breast Care Centre of Excellence. You know, um, mortality, how we look at mortality depends on where you are in the world and it also depends on what century you're in. So in the 16th century, people died of things such as the plague. Kids died going up chimneys and people barely lived till 40. So as our centuries go, if you look at death, we talk about people living now to the age of 110 and 120. What's happening is there are more chance for cells to undergo change. And if you're not dying of, say, for example, Africa, malaria, and in childbirth, and of violence, then as people live for longer and their cells change, there's more chance that the cells will undergo bad division, misbehave, and there you get cancers. So we're seeing an increase in all cancers across the board. In South Africa, one in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. I asked Professor Ben why the disease is so prevalent amongst women. It's not one thing. People look at sugar, they look at diet, lifestyle. Everyone's trying to find a cause and a blame. So there isn't one thing. It's a multitude of factors. It's kind of like a reverse lotto. It's genetics. It's certain aspects of your cell microenvironment. It's environmental factors. All those things play a role. So what's quite interesting now in the literature is women in their 30s and 40s taking contraceptive pills increase cancer risk. But again, you can't pinpoint that one thing. So I always say to people, you're an individual. You need to know your body. You need to know your family history on your mother and your father's side. And you must test accordingly and screen accordingly. And that means the big five that we should probably screen for are cervical, main prostate, that would be the equivalent, breast, stomach, colon, and skin. As women, surely we don't need to passively accept our breast cancer odds. I asked Professor Demetrio what we can actively do to lessen our risk. Try and eat healthy and don't stress. Eat all the bad carbs, saturated fats, refined sugars, and, you know, modify the risks that you can. Alcohol as well, often going through a stressful time, some people have an extra drink or two, that can increase risk. So modify the risk factors you can. If we could all modify life and wave that magic wand, we would, but it's not feasible. You can have that little piece of chocolate, but don't go have a 100-gram slab every single day. And it's about moderation, everything, trying to be as healthy as possible and knowing we all have an oops day. When I was diagnosed, I did a lot of Googling to find out why women get breast cancer. Not the best idea in retrospect. People blamed everything from cell phones to coffee to deodorants and even hair relaxers. But the thing that came up the most was the idea that sugar feeds cancer and that you need to eliminate it from your diet. I asked Professor Ben to separate fact from fiction. It's this big thing about sugar and cancer. So what we've got to realize is physiologically, at a cell level, all cells are having, and they're going through these tiny little vessels, the same amount of sugar that gets carried. So if you think that you're going to starve your cancer of sugar, you're starving your brain, you're starving your heart, you're starving everything else at the same time. Obviously, field of the future is oncology and oncology medicines, and what happens in that little what we call tumor microenvironment and how the little blood supplies and that works. But it's not one thing. You can't starve it. You might need other ways of killing the blood supply. And so just be careful what you 
thinking and learning because unless you have a detailed understanding of anatomy and physiology, you make a mistake by thinking I can starve a cancer and not starve everything else. So that deals with sugar, but when it comes to the treatment of breast cancer, there's also lots of myths floating around. When I was diagnosed, I was bombarded with offers of cannabis oil from well-meaning friends and family. I was interested to hear that Professor Ben doesn't completely discount the use of natural remedies in the treatment of cancer. So I think the thing is, things in nature are drugs in themselves. So some of the really good oncology drugs are derived from natural substances. I always talk about the flowers. So I think if you look at the puppy, the puppy bad is heroin, the puppy good is all your drugs, your pain medicines. You look at from a cannabinoid point of view, they're very useful aspects in the actual substance that can be used along pain pathways. And there's some very, very good specialists doing a lot of work. But it's not a cure drug for something. So there's an aspect of oncology that I find fascinating that I often think is not given enough time and effort and that's supportive care. Managing side effects and managing aspects around treatment that are hard for patients and sequelae that you live with for many years down the line. And it can be, the marijuana is a big thing at the moment, the cannabinoids, but can be hugely helpful around supportive care. You don't know that 30 years down the line, just like 30 years ago, thalidomide was the disaster drug for pregnant women who were taking it and had um, babies that were born without limbs. And as now Georgia can tell you, has a huge, huge extensive use in oncology care. So there's good and bad in everything. So it's not all bad, but there's nothing that is the be-all and the end-all, and the only answer in treatment to something, and that includes the medicinal cannabis. Professor Demetrio agrees that while there is a place for natural remedies in the treatment of side effects of cancer patients, it's important that everything her patients take has gone through the right approval process. There's a drug called veneralbine, which comes from the periwinkle plant. Taxanes that we use first line, second line, and often in breast cancer, come from the yew tree. So we're not anti looking at plant products and all other things that can help us, but we want to know that it's come through a process where we're using evidence-based medicine, not my auntie or my uncle said I should do it. So my philosophy is, yes, cannabis and cannabis oil will help for sleep, it will help for pain, but if patients are taking it to cure the cancer, it's not going to do that. So I always say, I don't know where you're getting it from, <laughs> I will block my ears and close my eyes, but as long as you're doing something that doesn't interfere with what I'm doing, I'm not going to be close-minded and say, don't. Just be sure that whatever, whether it's um, alkaline powder or if it's cannabis oil or if it's grape seeds or vitamin C, tell me what you're taking. Some of the stuff can make my chemo less effective. I don't want to give you side effects if you're not going to get maximal benefit, yes. but let me know if it doesn't harm what I do, then I would not be against it. From my own breast cancer experience, I've become a lot more aware of younger women getting this cancer, and I'm puzzled why the accepted age for your first mammogram is 40. Professor Ben explains that there's no need to wait. If you pick up anything suspicious in your breasts, you should go for a screening, but not necessarily a mammogram. So I think that cancer and breast cancer is neither ages, racist or sexist. I'm, I have a run of young boys under the age of 35, which is almost unheard of, that I'm seeing with male breast cancer at the moment. The thing about screening, it's about health economics. So in the US now we screen from 50, in the UK 50 every three years. So I'm a great believer if you're 23 and you're worried that something doesn't feel like 
go for a sonar. Sometimes in young people, mammograms don't pick things up, but sonars do in MRIs. So if you have that niggle in your head that something doesn't feel right, go for the right investigations. We've all heard the slogan, early detection saves lives, and yet women are still surprised when they are diagnosed with breast cancer. Christy certainly was. I think what it, it's, it's no longer, breast cancer is no longer just a disease for, for our mom's friends. You know, it's actually now it's, it's younger and younger and it's, it's, I don't know if it's the stress or the food we're eating. I mean, Carol said to me, she's like, I said, what caused this? Why? Like what? I've done nothing, but I've been healthy my whole life. I've never, and she just said, it's just genetics. You know, it's one of those things, it's like a luck of the draw. So if it can happen to anyone, why aren't more women undertaking self-examination or screening? Clinical psychologist Grant Statham believes that in order to drive more screenings, the narrative around them needs to change. I asked him why so many of us bury our heads in the sand when it comes to breast cancer. So I think there's, there's a couple of factors that contribute to that. And I think primarily the first one is that we tend to underestimate risk. So as human beings, we use a lot of cognitive strategies to uh, absorb and work with information. Uh, and we have a propensity to what to term optimism bias. So we never really think it is going to happen to us until it actually does. And the whole concept of optimism bias is really that we underestimate risk for things that we don't want to happen to us, and we tend to overestimate risk or potential for things that we do want to happen. So if I had to give you the odds of one in eight, um, breast cancer, you'd probably feel like your odds are actually not that high. Whereas if I had to say to you that you've got a one in eight chance of winning the lottery, you'd probably feel quite excited. And that's just really the way that we process information and assimilate it into, uh, into our existence. I think the second thing is really around you know, the behaviours of diagnostic and self-examination and the motivation being poor. You know, if we look at it in its simplest form, uh, self-examination and diagnostic behaviours or screening tests is really quite idiosyncratic in the sense that we are effectively actively looking for something that we actually don't want to find. And for many people that feels sort of counterintuitive. And that's really where the motivation to engage in those behaviours is quite low. You know, particularly if we ascribe negative outcomes to what we might, might find, particularly if it's fatalistic and sort of catastrophic thinking, you know, so the consequence of finding something is really then perceived to be quite dire. So nobody wants to be engaging in those behaviours. So we need to be thinking about things a little bit differently. And we really need to start changing the narrative that we ascribe to create breast cancer awareness and to make sure that everybody is invested in considering their own risk. Breast cancer treatment has come a long way in the last decade. Some of the most exciting developments are in the field of genetics. Professor Ben believes that the need for surgery will become less and less in the future as we gain a better understanding of cancer cells' behaviour. We're starting to look at where we actually take the genetics of the cancer cell. So where we understand breast cancer has moved from treating it in terms of stages. Everyone used to want to know how big was your cancer, was it in the glands, what stage are you with any cancer? And there would be a very recipe approach to treatment. And the recipe would be have some form of surgery, have some form of oncology. Today now, well, particularly with breast cancer, we divide the breast cancer into four different behavioral types, the biology of the cells. And by looking at those types, they're treated differently. So different cancers will be treated with different things, some with target therapy, some with tablets, some with surgery, they're different ways. The future generation is going to be where you can actually treat cancers elsewhere with similar drugs that you use to treat breast cancer because what you are doing is 
you're understanding the genetics at a cell level. It's like a cancer in a petri dish. And try and work out what is the right medication. There are several other medical breakthroughs and procedures that Professor Ben is investigating, from cryosurgery that uses extreme cold to freeze and kill cancer cells, to the abscopal effect of radiation therapy, which is the ability of localized radiation to trigger systemic anti-tumor effects. I'm looking forward to, in the next year or so, bringing things such as cryosurgery in, where you can freeze cancer cells, and we have these effects called abscopal effects, where you kill the cancer where it is, and your body's own um, immune natural killer cells almost develop a way of understanding that that is bad and helping kill things elsewhere. So there are huge breakthroughs happening. We have special radiation machines in theatre that we can take the cancer out, put a little bit of radiation in one area. It's really becoming less and less and less and understanding what's happening in terms of a cell behaviour. And it's not only in surgery where doctors are increasingly looking at cancer from a cellular level. This approach is extremely powerful in the field of oncology, says Professor Demetrio. It's a very exciting time for us. Um, just having come back from the European oncology meeting, you know, all the new things, the exciting things, the things that allow us to say, I don't have to throw the atomic bomb at one cell, I could potentially target it on a cellular level. It comes with side effects always, but somewhat more manageable side effects. Often medication that people can be on for a longer period without having such severe effects. Certainly hair loss starts to become less and less of something that we're going to have to worry about. Um, you know, we're going to get to the point where people don't have to go around and say, yeah, this bad hair do you, it's because of my oncologist. They can go around there and say, okay, you know, yes, I've got some side effects, but it's manageable. I can carry on with my day and quality of life is actually really, really quite good. As Grant said earlier, there's a lot of women who ignore the need for screening, taking a this-won't-happen-to-me approach. Like Christy, this is equally true of the financial aspects of cancer. Professor Ben believes that assessing a patient's psychological and financial stresses is critically important. The future is in technology where we have groups, psycho-oncology groups, so in other words, when people come in, they fill out immediate questionnaires that rate in terms of what their stressors are. So one of the most important fields for me in all aspects of medicine, particularly oncology, and I've really learned this from my son who's a diabetic, is this concept of patient navigation, financial navigation around what their financial crises are, their home, their family, their psychology. For Christy, at 31, taking out additional insurance cover didn't feel like a priority. I was very fortunate to have my mom on the phone, because as much as you might, you know, you get registered for these oncology benefits, for example, but it's everything's coded wrong and you're having to chase up every last cent. And I mean, not to mention that you want to see the right, when you're dealing with something like this, you need to see the right specialists. And I mean, these guys are charging four times cover, you know, or whatever, three times. And it's, I think it's actually quite scary, not to mention with, you know, the breast cancer side of things is the hormonal stuff. Now suddenly you've got fertility and you've got, and I mean, at the time being 31 years old, didn't even cross my mind to have any additional cover. The financial aspects of a cancer diagnosis are generally not given the same airtime as the medical and emotional side of it. Cancer can be a very costly disease to treat, from accessing expensive new treatments, to dealing with a lack of income, to paying for additional childcare. I spoke to Sinantlantla Nzama, head product actuary at Investec Life, about what women can do to alleviate the additional stress that comes from worrying about money in a cancer diagnosis. The reality is that cancer is a life-threatening illness or condition 
And given that's the major illness in South Africa, really the costs involved that you need to be aware of actually earlier and earlier before you get diagnosed are the cost for consultations of medical specialists like oncologists or surgeons if you need to do a surgery and the surgery cost, stuff cost of that depending on the type of cancer that can be operated on. Uh, also look at diagnostics uh, such as mammograms that may be needed, may not be as high cost and medical aid will typically cover some of those. But then also have other treatment regimes like drugs that may be needed or chemotherapy and radiation. So all those combined can actually be quite a significant amount of costs that you need to be aware of. New generation immunotherapy drugs can cost up to 1 million rand, while a mastectomy plus an older generation immunotherapy drug could cost you in excess of 500,000 rand. Not to mention a six-week cycle of chemo or radiation that can both exceed 100,000 rand. When you consider the high costs of cancer treatment, it's imperative to have the right cover in place. I asked Sinan Klantler to talk me through the options. Actually, there are three types of products that you find typically in South Africa to look after your health. One is the medical aid, uh, the other one is what you, is called gap cover, and then it's severe illness cover or dread disease cover. So if medical aid is set up such that it can pay for the cost of treatment or consultations, and it pays directly to the healthcare provider or the doctor who's treating you. But however, medical aid is typically kept. So it's not necessarily always painful, and especially for the high cost conditions like a cancer or heart conditions. And also it may be prescriptive in terms of which drugs it will pay for, regardless of what your doctor may be recommending. Again, because it, must, it needs to be cost conscious, because the benefits of the medical aid are shared amongst all the members. While the second product uh, or offering that you find out there in the market is what's called gap cover. That is typically to ensure that if your medical aid does not pay for everything while you're in hospital, uh, it can pay for those medical specialists to look after you while in hospital. But the, the law changed and now it only can pay up to 150000 a year. So it's really not sufficient for something like a cancer. It will just be wiped out very, very soon. Uh, and then we've got severe illness cover, which is a type of insurance product. It really acts as two parts. One, to supplement your your medical aid, wherever it's got gaps for a major condition like a, like a cancer, but also to ensure that you can have financial support all round. So it can look after your, to ensure it can have a home nursing or someone supports you to look after yourself and your kids, if you've got kids, that's critically important to ensure your recovery, but also pays for anything else that you may need over and above what your medical aid may typically pay. So overseas treatment is, an, is, a, is one of the examples. Traveling to specialist clinics is another one. So it's really a, a financial instrument more than than just paying for the treatment itself. One of the main differences between medical aid and severe illness cover is that while medical aid will pay the healthcare provider directly, severe illness cover pays you. Civilian is one of those great products that pays on diagnosis. So as long as the diagnostics confirm that you've got a cancer, the payout is triggered automatically. But with severe illness, it, it pays directly to you in your bank account. So the next time you go and see your treating specialist, you actually structure your treatment regimes without, without the constraints of medical aid payout, but with the supplementary uh, payouts that you've already got from your insurer. Being diagnosed with breast cancer, you have multiple stresses from the medical process to the psychological and financial aspects of the disease. Reassuringly though, treatment options are progressing rapidly, with women like Professor Ben and Professor Demetrio leading the charge. Today, if the cancer is located only in the breast and you catch it early, the five-year survival rate of women with breast cancer is 99%. For Christy, on her own personal journey, breast cancer has taught her a lot of valuable lessons. 
It's this sort of belief that you always have to be perfect. Just think like you need this, this desire to be perfect and everything to be perfect. And I think this was almost something that was actually quite liberating to say, you know what, I'm no longer perfect. And I have scars. I have, you know, and it's just, you actually, you know, it gives you the ability to be a bit more vulnerable and just to say that this is actually something that I've gone through. Thank you for listening to this Investic Focus podcast. Please take the time to rate this conversation and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. And stay tuned for parts two and three of our Investec Life podcast series, where we speak to young women who have survived lung and liver cancer and ask the experts to weigh in on these often overlooked diseases.